Right then, the meeting has officially come to order. The Apex Podcast with me, Alex Yotzi. Cool, there we go. Um, thanks for coming on, Chris. I really appreciate you coming. Welcome to the podcast. So, one thing that uh, really <laughs> stood out for me when I met you was that you had a really cool story and don't get me wrong, I'm sure it was a very frightening story. Um, you're one of the few Victorians that have actually been attacked by a crocodile. So, basically, uh, fast forwarding, um, we have a, a sanctuary here on the Mornington Peninsula and home to roughly, I'd say, 250 animals, mainly native, including a uh, saltwater, one of two here, uh, saltwater crocodiles. Uh, Crikey uh, is a, about 11 years old now, just over two metres, and, uh, yeah, he got the better of me one day. I was moving him from one enclosure to another and basically he grabbed me on the wrist. Thankfully, it was just a love bite. Um, 39 stitches later, severed my arteries to my hand. wasn't ideal, but definitely could have been a lot worse. Uh, you know, they are the apex predator and... Uh, Highly intelligent, small brain, and you know I'm I'm new to the sport, but uh, that was a, a good introduction. <laughs> yeah, you got a really good mindset. I got to commend you for that. Um, a two meter croc. How much roughly does crocky weigh? At a guess, I would say I'd say ten kilos, maybe. At a guess, ten kilos. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's looking pretty healthy and and fit. Uh, he's a beautiful specimen, one of our favourites here, and no doubt you know a lot about uh, the crocodiles. And uh, it's been a real learning curve for us. It's uh, I, I, let me take you back, um, Alex. So I'm an unusual character, maybe one of the more unusual ones you're going to have on your podcast and I feel honoured to be part of it and it's uh, quite fitting because, you know, I'm someone making a transition into a new career and that is running a wildlife uh, sanctuary here on the Mornington Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, Australia, Um, something that... Yeah, I'd love to ask you about that whole... Yeah, as I said, your resume before we hit the record button. Um, you started off as a jockey first, is that correct? Uh, yeah, so 21 years as a jockey, um, recently retired as of yesterday, actually. Um, oh, wow. Congrats. So, thank you. Uh, 21 years in the saddle. So to take you right back, I left home school when I was 14, um, academically struggled. Always had a love for animals growing up. Grew up in suburbia, um, in Mentone, actually. Mum and Dad had a baker's delight. No uh, no animals, really, apart from the the, the pet dog at home. But um, mm. always interested in wildlife and, and saw the opportunity. I was always really small and saw the opportunity to get out of school and uh, took that opportunity to become an apprentice jockey. And I was... Far from being a natural as a jockey, it was a, an eye-opener for me. I had to leave school and home at the age of 14, so I didn't even complete year eight at school. Probably would have failed it anyway, but I was a bit of a rat bag and um, took on the career as a jockey, and, and it wasn't easy. It, uh, most jockeys um, come from a, a horsey background. Their parents were a jockey or a trainer or 
They've done mm. bow jumping. Owner, yeah, something like that. Yeah. They've had some connection. I didn't have any. Uh, however, I did have an uncle that had a, a flutter with the, 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 the horses and owned a couple of horses, and that was as far as it really went. He kind of introduced me to the industry. It's a cutthroat industry. It's You've got to grow up real quick. Um, that's a tough gig for a 14-year-old kid entering a man's world. Yeah. And, you do grow up real quick and uh, I didn't really get the assistance that I was hoping for. Um, I basically had to teach myself how to ride. I, I ended up buying a pony. Um, I was based at Cranbourne initially and then I ended up at yeah. headquarters at Flemington and I was with a trainer there. Uh, he had a father that trained in South Australia and for your um, listeners, viewers, they probably wouldn't be you know, that familiar with horse racing. It's a massive industry in Australia, but its pinnacle is Victoria and also New South Wales. South Australia, with all due respects, you know, it's uh, the lesser kind of grade of uh, horses. So uh, when I eventually got to the stage from riding that pony to a bigger pony to eventually riding a thoroughbred um, in track work and then progressively learning to ride a horse in a trial to uh, finally getting that gig to ride in a race. My boss at the time, his father trained in South Australia, so he sent me over there. And as I mentioned earlier, I was far from a natural. So basically I went to South Australia because let's not kid ourselves, no one watches South Australian racing. And he said, you go over there and make all your mistakes there and then come back and see how you go. I'll send you there for three months. Alex, I was that bad a rider. I was stuck there for two years. Um, but I did have success and, and I eventually came back and I was still an apprentice and I came back and I ended up at, um, where did I end up? Back at Cranbourne uh, and I continued to ride as an apprentice. And as an incentive um, for your listeners, um, for jockeys as an apprentice for as an incentive for uh trainers to put you on their horses because you're a young kid you know the likes of Damien Oliver you're riding up against so as an incentive for them to put you on you take an allowance off their horse so everything's weight related that's why jockeys are small basically to put an apprentice on you take three kilos off the horse's back so that is a, a beneficial, you might not sound like much, three kilos. However, you know, it, it, it's a lot when it comes to a, a race and uh, that's the incentive for trainers to put apprentices on. And eventually you're, the more winners you ride, that allowance gets lower and lower. So originally you, you claim three, two, one and a half kilos to eventually you outride your claim. So uh, if you haven't already finished your four-year apprenticeship. I did finish my apprenticeship and outrode my claim and that's probably the toughest time for a jockey because you're coming out of, uh, you know, you're still deemed as a kid. So basically you've got to still uh, ride against the best, whether it be Damien Oliver or Craig Williams, the pinnacles of the, the jockey ranks. And I saw an opportunity to go overseas. I actually invented heated jackets when I was, 18. Um, I wasn't academic, uh, as I mentioned, but what I was, I, I think outside the square and had this amazing idea where jockeys are always losing weight, sitting in saunas, hot spas to reduce weight to make weight right. on a horse. So I very similar to fighters, absolutely. Um, just smaller, yeah. smaller versions, and they can't fight. Um, 
But uh, fly away. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought, imagine if you had an electric blanket and it was portable and you could heat your body up and lose weight because riding a horse is a workout and part of being a jockey is getting up at 3 a.m. and riding horses, track work. They're athletes. You've got to get them fit. So mm. um, that's when they do it, early in the morning when it's not hot, um, plus there's races during the day. So basically that's when we ride horses. And as I mentioned, it's a, it's a workout. So I, with another guy, invented a heated infrared heated jackets for jockeys. I took it over to Los Angeles and uh, we were getting some – big wigs to endorse the product and while I was there I was offered an opportunity to become a jockey over there so in Seattle actually so I came home I sorted out a visa and I nicked off with my wife we weren't married then uh we went to Seattle um we went there for about seven months and I was quite successful as a jockey but little did I know while I was away old mate that I invented the jackets with tried to filter me out of the equation and doing so changed the company name and for those that know anything about patents the patent went up in the air right rip curl ended up with the patent because we'd made these jackets so that they could go into wetsuits so wetsuits could stay warm and uh underwater etc so rip curl ended up with it and it ended up a multi-million dollar company and nor he or I ended up getting any dividends on that. But you live and learn through life and uh, that was a big learning curve for me. I was young and dumb and um, life goes on. I came back from America um, and I had a lot of success as a jockey and rode for some big trainers and I've been lucky enough, Alex, to have ridden in three Melbourne Cups. Um, the first year I rode a horse called Kibbutz and I ran 10th and then the, the following year I rode a horse called Newport um, and he ran ninth, and I thought, shit, I might win this in another eight years. And then I uh, rode a horse called Sap Party. And uh, for those of you that do follow the the Melbourne Cup, there's only 24 horses. Well, Sap Party, the horse I rode from France, he ran about 28th. Um, I had the the white ponies follow uh, beating me home after that race. But uh, anyway, I. Continued on my career as a jockey, and and as I said, I I was successful. I rode about over twelve hundred winners in my career, and uh, two thousand and thirteen, I was leaving the races just to paint you the picture. I'd had an unsuccessful day at Sale on the on the East Gippsland, and uh, I was leaving the races. And you have a suitcase. I was putting it in the boot of my car, and all the jockeys were leaving the races at the same time. I see this car reversing towards me. And I thought it was one of the jockeys playing a joke because that's what we do. We play jokes on one another. Um, for example, at uh, Flemington, there's only five showers, one, two, three, four, five, but there's only one drain down one end. So I go down the other end and I tip bottles of Gatorade down so people think I'm pissing in the shower. <laughs> um, so now I actually do piss in the shower and they think it's Gatorade. But um, anyway, I thought <laughs> playing a joke. This car was getting closer and faster and last minute I jumped into the boot of my car but unfortunately my left foot didn't make it and slammed into the back, back of my car and oh. my foot was pinned in between and turned my foot into a pancake. I was in excruciating pain and that wasn't the painful part. I was banging on the back of the car for him to l- drive forward to release my foot um, 
it was a real dampener. This little person got out of the car. I kid you not. I said, mate, what the fuck were you doing? And he goes, oh, sorry, Doc. <laughs> I couldn't reach the pedals. It was a little apprentice jockey and uh, true story. Couldn't make that up. But uh, that put me out for seven and a half months. Gee. Um, so he crushed your foot in between the back of his car and the back of your car. Correct. So I was in the boot. So that put me out of action for about... Yeah, I think it was seven or eight months. Uh, they had to put my foot back together and it was a real dampener on my career. Basically, I had to start again, but not one to dwell on negativity. And during that eight months that I was out, I, I kind of took the piss out of it. And next thing, media outlets were me telling that same story uh, were interested because it was funny, you know. Um, jockey gets run over by another jockey in a car park. It's quite uncanny um so that led into some <laughs> funny things you know like triple m were running with it and a few other radio stations next minute channel seven contacted me and they wanted to do some stuff with me um so in that time i uh formed this relationship with channel seven and with them i invented the helmet cameras that are used in the melbourne cup so all the helmet cams that are, are used in Racing all over Australia is one of mine and Channel 7's and uh, we created that together and and uh, and I still today work with them and, and I do interviewing and stuff like that. And um, it's funny how things work out. So that was created by me getting run over in a car park and then, you know, next minute I've got the helmet cams and then Michelle Payne, who wins the Melbourne Cup in 2015 and I get a phone call from a lady called Rachel Griffiths, who's a an actress, and she's rang me with another gentleman by the name of Richard Keddy, and Richard Keddy's a producer. He produced a movie called Oddball about the dog and the penguins and that. Um, yeah. So they phoned me up and they say, uh, we've just brought the rights um, from Michelle Payne uh, to make a movie on her riding the Melbourne Cup winner and we have no idea what we're doing and when it comes to horses and uh, we everyone we speak to in the racing industry keeps suggesting your name to get involved. So I was employed by Rachel Griffiths and Richie Keddy as the head person to do the movie. Um, with that, my wife and I and a good friend, we created a team of horses, 37 horses we had, and we trained these horses to become uh, the movie horses and we created a, a movie, Ride Like a Girl. And, uh, you know, it was an experience and I took time away from riding to do it and, um, you know, it was a real eye-opener. Would I do it again? Probably not. Um, but uh, it, it... But you tried it. I, I, you know, I try anything once and... Uh, Meanwhile, all this was happening, we had this farm on the Mornington Peninsula, which we started creating because Sam and I, my wife, Sam and I, uh, our best friend has got cerebral palsy and um, Troy, his name is, and I've known him for a long, long time and he's wheelchair bound. So this one day we, that we have a place up the road called the RDA, which is Riding for the Disabled and and my wife was a volunteer there and uh, I organised the Melbourne Cup to go there this one day and I took a cockatoo with me and 
I met the Melbourne Cup there and we I invited my friend Troy Gleason, uh, who has cerebral palsy, and to see the impact that not only the horses, the Melbourne Cup and uh, this cockatoo had with the special needs children and adults was somewhat of I've never seen before. And my wife and I that night had an epiphany and we said, let's let's build a zoo. And uh, that's exactly what we've done. Yeah. So for six years uh, we've created an amazing place and we've created something that uh well, we have a few rules. One is we don't make any of our animals do things they don't want to do. That's priority. Uh, as well as mm. if and a wheelchair can't access an area, nobody does, okay? So everything is wheelchair-friendly and, and that was really important to us. We're on 10 acres here, Alex, and uh, this was a, a, a vacant block of land 16 years ago. We built a barn. We lived in that. There was no power here. We put power in, we put a driveway, and then um, we finally built our home. We originally set the property up for horses because that's what we were kind of angling towards. But after that particular day, uh, we started to build a zoo. And uh, now home, as I mentioned earlier, to 250 animals. Um, this place is not only a haven for the animals that we have that live here, but for those that come here. and. Uh, whether you're able body or in a wheelchair, uh, we cater for all. And we're a five-star rating and we've only been open probably two years now and we're unique, we're boutique and we, don't, we haven't commercialised what we've done and we, know, we don't plan on doing that. Um, and let's roll back to the start when I said as of yesterday I stopped riding as a jockey. In 2015, Alex, I had a bad accident. I broke the T6 and 7 in my back, uh, in my neck. I've broken over 40 bones oh, and eight falls in my life. I've had three significant head injuries and it's been an ongoing problem for me. Um, I rode up until Christmas just just gone and, and with these niggling problems throughout that five, six years, I've, I've continued to, to go through that pain barrier and the reason I've done that is because I've got responsibilities. I've got a, I've got a young family. I've got a 12-year-old daughter, Ziva. I've got a beautiful wife and, uh, and 250 animals and I couldn't just, we were building this haven for people and animals and, and uh, you know, I had to keep riding and, and that's all I've thought about, keep riding, keep riding. I've had a lot of issues with my memory, Alex, and since 2015, I chose to ignore it. Um, Short-term memory loss is probably being the biggest issue for me. And this is the first podcast I've spoken of it, and uh, basically uh, people around me have noticed it, but I always brushed it off because I've always been busy, whether it was working on the movie, working for Channel 7, working on the farm, riding as a jockey professionally every riding. day. Um, mm. You know, I have always had a million things going on. So if I forgot something, I'd always say, well, give me a spell, you know, like I've got a million things going on, you know, um, get over it. Mm. So, uh, it wasn't until probably COVID hit and like you, like everyone, everyone's lives 
paused, you know. Everything slowed down. Um, I didn't have a movie. I wasn't doing Channel 7. I wasn't doing as much on the farm. I was writing a bit but not much. Um, that's when it kind of hit home. Uh, yeah, I've got a problem. I've um, something going on with my brain. So I seek the right help. I went and saw neuropsychs and they established that there is a problem, you know. There's, I haven't got dementia or Alzheimer's and it's something that I can work through. Um, it's short-term memory, not everything, um, you know, anniversaries, my wife's birthday, you know, the things you forget. <laughs> but, uh you know, uh, it, it's a problem. And and the other problem is I have very stiff neck, all, not all the time, majority of the time. So I've had surgery just this year. They burnt all my nerve endings on my spine. But I just said, you know, enough's enough. Um, I didn't renew my licence as a jockey. Uh, I feel that I've established that part of my life and now I'm entering the next chapter and it's exciting, you know, we've created this amazing place that's uh who knows where it'll where it'll expand to we haven't tapped into our whole um you know what we want to do we've still got probably four and a half acres of land that we haven't tapped into yet uh but as i mentioned we don't want to commercialize it we've got a small team we've got a manageable amount of animals and uh we don't have animals bounce you know two thousand animals living in our house um yeah, we have got a couple, um, but uh, we pride ourselves on how we keep and treat our animals, um, and we've got not only a great team of animals, we've got a great team of staff, and, you know, we've got probably, I'd say, 11 people that, that work here, um, not all at one time. We run tours. We don't, it's, you don't, we're a lot different to, say, the Melbourne Aquarium where you can pay a fee, walk in. We know who's coming before they come. You pre-book, uh, you arrive here, you'll be part of a, a group between 10 and 15 people. You can actually buy your own section, so you can buy your own slot, so to speak. So basically um, you, our tours go for an hour and a half, roughly, give or take. Um, as I said, 10 to 15 people and you've got a guide uh, and they take you on this amazing journey. The animals either come out to you or you're in with the animals and we we, we offer uh, things that people can't even imagine. We've got the iconic Australian animals, koalas, wombats, kangaroos, emus, amazing parrots, kookaburras. Uh, we've just built a new we, – we have different stations. So every animal has their own station. So – for example, there's a two-and-a-half-acre enclosure for our macropods, kangaroos, wallabies, emus. So that's a station. So a group will be out there for 10, 15, 20 minutes, how long it takes, you know. Like there's no rush with our groups. We'll have three or four groups running at one time, but they're all at designated areas and they shuffle as, as the hour-and-a-half goes on and um, – Basically, you move from area to area, so then you go to the wombats and the wombats come out and these are our pets. These, This is our backyard and you don't see an animal in a cage. You know, we, we're trying to change the the perception. Um, perception is 99% of everything. You're in with the animals or they're out with you and uh, you get up close and personal with them, mm. whether it be a crocodile, not crikey. Um, he's a bit big now. 
the wombats to come out and to pat them is it blows people's minds. Um, to go into our eleven meter high aviary that we've just built with our not only native but exotic parrots as well. We've got macaws, ekis, we've got um, alexandrines, we've got Indian ringnecks, cockatiels, partridges. You know, like we've got kookaburras, tawnies, mm. um, bushstone curlews. We've got beautiful birds. Pop- yeah, we've got an amazing range of birds, but. We like to, our point of difference is we don't want you to go to a, a sanctuary and go, oh, pay for an encounter, you know. It's all part of it, you know. And uh, mm. and as mentioned, we do a lot with special needs. So during the week we run a lot of programs with different organisations and they come out here and there might not be anyone else here and, um, you know, it's uh, – that's what we do, you know. We do a lot around educational um, conservation, and and we've got this amazing team. And um, uh, Vince Pintali, uh, who's a, I'd love for you to get him on here. He's a massive part of our team. He runs a mobile zoo, and he's been here all day today working with me with the crocodiles. And you know, he's right into the science around um, reptiles, and and we all feed off each other here. We haven't got an expert zoologist you know it's it's all bullshit anyway you know we've we've learned it doing it you know um we feed off vince with with the reptiles and like today me watching him taking the samples of the water and working out the nitrates and things that you're probably doing it at the at the aquarium and i find it fascinating and um you know we're taking water you know half empties and we're filling it back up and Little things like replacing the water with um, our dam water. Our dam water is like magic uh, compared to our tank water. We're not in town water here. We're on tank water. And amazingly, um, you know, the, the the difference, you know, I find it in, completely incredible. And, and to share that with uh, students through universities and schools that come through here, you know, I, I love it. And uh and talking about our koalas and how they can do anywhere between 150 and 200 shits a day. Um, it's fascinating. You know, people find that fascinating that they're a marketable <laughs> and, and that's what we do during our tours. Do you feel like the majority of students, because look, I'm sure you'll find one or two students are really eager. They're in the same mindset as you and me, big animal fans, but a majority of, you know, high school age students are really like, oh, I'm too cool for this, this shit. Um, do you feel like you get a lot of that at such an open range zoo like yours, or do you reckon they flip it? No, nah, I reckon like they flip cool. it. Um, we had a school yeah. a month ago come out, and you know, one of the, the the teachers come up to me before they we started, and she said, "I'll apologise now. I've got a couple of students that could be a handful, you know." And uh, she goes, "Do you want me to point mm-hmm. them out?" And I said, "I don't want to know. I don't." We won't have a problem, and and I can relate. As I said, I was a rat bag, you know. I was that kid, and um, I, I give it just as much as I can take it, you know. And and uh, I I don't drill people. I, I we make it fun, you know. Um, I want my aim is for everyone to leave this property with a smile on their face, and that's that's our goal. Um, 
Mm. And that's not just uh, the students or the public. Um, that's my st- that's our staff as well. You know, I want everyone to leave here with a smile because it's what life's about. You know, life's easy and uh, it's important to stay positive mm. and and people are going through really tough times and uh, it's been really challenging on everyone, including us, but hell, we're going extremely well for where we're at, you know, and uh, we like to try and help other organisations as well, like Vince, for example. You know, his, his business is completely barbecued along with so many other um, wildlife demonstrators, um, the mobile zoos, and I don't know how they're coping and, and mm. that means that I can share the love through our social for them. Uh, I don't see people as competitors because... I already know I've got the best product, um, so I don't have to, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I good products sell themselves. We don't have a five-star, you know, for no reason. We've got a five-star because we've got a point of difference and we keep up in the ante. And I'm from a very different industry, uh, horse racing, which is under scrutiny mm. all the time, 24-7, you know, little people with whips hitting an animal it's not for me you know you've been on both sides of that issue right you you've seen how the racing industry is with claims of animal cruelty um and then you know the odd jockey giving a gut punch to a horse on the news yeah but then you also come from a a really loving wildlife background as well are those claims based on truths in your opinion of animal cruelty in the racing industry um I'd have to say no. I, what I will say is 98% of people in racing love their animals and nurture them and treat them with the utmost respect. But 2%, you know, are the bad apples and you'll whether yeah. they cheat using drugs, uh, bad behaviour towards the animals. But then I'll also say to you that yeah. 98% of people in zoos are doing the right thing as well, you know, in sanctuaries. But there's always mm-hmm. bad eggs, you know. And this is where I go to perception. Perception in t- 2021 is 99% of everything, okay, and uh, mm-hmm. how we do things and um, uh, are seen so different now to what they were seen five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, 20 years ago. The world changes. And I say to people in horse racing, it, it, it's, uh, it's got its use by date it, and it has to, you know, um, and they, they laugh at me because oh, it's such a big industry. Zoos have a use by date. Whether it's in our lifetime, whether horse racing's mm. use by date is in our lifetime, I don't know. But I can tell you now, thousands of years ago, they had this place called the Colosseum, right, and it was barbaric. Yeah. They're not doing that now, are they? You know what I mean? And back then they would have been saying, you know, as if they're going to shut down the Colosseum. Thousands of years ago they would have been saying, as if it's too big of an industry, you know, it's too entertaining. Are you not entertained? You know, like, uh, but, you know, they shut the Colosseum down. So society changes and... and how, how far away do you reckon that's that's from us? Uh, who knows? Uh it's 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 a hard one 
they need to move with the times and um, perception, you know, perception's everything. And are they doing enough in that space? Probably not, you know. Um, I voiced my opinions about the use of the whip and and whatever uh, 12 months ago and I got smashed, absolutely smashed, Alex, um, by my own industry. People saying, shut your mouth, you know, what are you talking about? We can't have races without whips, you know. Um, it wasn't that I think that it's cruel. Um, I think that it's more of the perception. They are a 600-kilo animal. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. And they yeah. are an unruly animal yeah. to control at times. And and we see them at – we saw that – at the Olympics, you know, um, that woman mistreated her horse and uh, and we saw the uproar. Society don't like it. They don't like people mistreating animals and and if they look just, at Just a- for a uh, frame of reference, um, for the people listening that don't know what you're talking about with the Olympic case, do you want to talk about what happened? Well, I don't know a great deal about it but there was an, an event and I can't even remember what country she was from. Um, and her horse was spooked and she uh, was screaming at it. And I believe I haven't seen the footage, allegedly uh, punched the horse at some point, as did the, oh, wow. as did, yeah. as did the trainer in the view of the cameras and whatever. Um, and it, and it got a, it, it got a lot of, uh, airtime and uh, it was disgusting behaviour. But uh, what's the difference between her hitting a horse like that and twenty four jockeys in the Melbourne Cup doing the same thing? I don't know. But um, you know, it's it probably needs to. I don't know. It's it's a hard one for me because I also work in the industry to a degree, and I've got to be really careful how I word things and what I say and it's a really touchy subject um but should a a bird be kept in a cage you know and this is there's so many things going on and no doubt at times people would say about the aquarium with the crocodile in that enclosure is it satisfactory um people might say it here um and that's what I drill into everyone that's here, um, that works here, and during our tours, first of all and foremost, all of our animals here have been born in captivity. So nothing has been taken out of the wild, right? And I think that's really important for people to know that. Mm. Um, And I think it's also important for people to know the law that sits in Victoria regarding. uh, animals from the wild that have gone into care, um, that majority of them, if they are not released back into the wild and could live a perfectly happy, happy life here, for example, or so many other similar organisations, unfortunately they're euthanized. Um, and I think that's important for people to know that. Each state has different laws in that space. And... Uh, Taking people into a 11 meter high enclosure, yes, they are in captivity, yes. But what we do here is we try to give them the absolute 
best possible life that they can have in captivity, okay? And that's something that we pride ourselves on. That's why our dingoes, not only do they have a three-quarters of an acre enclosure for four dingoes that all live together, we take them out, we walk them, we take them to dog parks, uh, yeah. we take them to the beach, we walk them up the street, you know. We still try to give, well, we give our animals the best possible life. Our macropod enclosures, humongous, you know. Um, you know, we've got acres that we are able to utilise and, and give our animals the best possible space. and. That is why we keep our groups to 10 to 15 people because we don't want hundreds of people in a macro, you know, with our kangaroos at one time, with their heads mm-hmm. out with food and trying to drive everything mad. You know, we don't want 15 people around a crocodile enclosure, you know, 50 to 100 people around a crocodile enclosure. Like, in, you know, I, we, we keep our groups small because um, it keeps our animals happy and, and you can see that when you're here because the wallabies come up to us, um, the wombats come out for us, uh, the birds will fly onto you. They wouldn't do that if they didn't like you, you know. Um, they wouldn't do that if you had mm. 100 plus people in there driving them mad. Uh, you've also got control. When you've got 10 to 15 people in your group, um, you have a sense of control. Uh let's say four, five, six of them are children and they're being unruly, you know, that's better than having 40 kids unruly. So you can say, come on, stay on the path, you know, these are the rules in this area, you know. Um, We do a debrief before we go into the aviary. If you do not want a bird on you and you have one on your shoulder, basically you drop, it'll fly off you. Don't take a plate with the fruit and the seed in Mm -hmm. with you, you know. or stay on the outside, you know. Um, these are the things that we go through before we put someone in a position where they've got an animal around them and, and we think that protects our animals as well, which are uh, their safety's priority as is yours or, or whoever arrives at our awesome funky farm. Mm. Do, do you have any endangered animals at the funky sure, farm? Sure, we've got uh, all sorts of, uh, you've thrown me, thrown me onto the spot, but... Uh, we've got bandicoots, um, gliders, uh, the sugar gliders, um, squirrel gliders. Uh, you know, it's something that we'd like to get more involved in. The koalas. We've also we'd like to get. Uh, we'd love to come across a, um, the, the hairy nosed wombats, whether that be southern or, or northern, uh, into the future because we'd love to showcase the difference between the three. Not a lot of people know that there's more than one type exactly. of wombat. They always think it's just a wombat. That's right. But- we don't have plaques up in every enclosure because we don't need them, you know, because you're with me and on the tour, I'll tell you all about the kookaburra. I'll tell you all about the tawnies. I'll yeah. tell you all about every animal that we encounter along the way. And I'll say it again, you know, we're a five-star and we're really proud of that. You know, it's a pretty awesome place and I can't wait um, to get you out here to to experience it. I've been meaning to come out, of course, where we are with COVID situations. Um, ever since I first met you, I've been trying to come out there, but always been kind of restricted to metro areas of Melbourne, unfortunately. But don't worry, that's at the top of my list. And he um, used- I can't wait to come out. And I was just going to say, you're still at the aquarium? Yeah. yeah, still working at the aquarium. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's been tricky with Metro Melbourne, particularly the CBD coming into lockdown. Um, it's been tricky, but, you know, still operating as normal there, um, which is cool. But, yeah, just like you, we're, we're keen to have some guests come back. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people don't really think about zoos or anything, but everything in the zoos or aquariums, they still need to eat. So, there's still people working there. Absolutely. Um, only thing missing is the guests. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and we met in a funny circumstances. I think it was during a, a time when we could obviously leave our homes. Um, I think I asked about the, yeah. the, the audio that you had on your, on your belt. Yeah, little, little mic pack. Did you end up getting some? Sure did, yeah. They've been fantastic, actually, and I think it'll save my voice into the future. But uh, yeah, I do appreciate that, and that's where it's great to be able to to work with other people. And what I will say is, I find it is a very um, competitive industry. Um, the zoo, especially the mobile zoos, and I feel that there's a lot of animosity towards one another with the little sanctuaries and things like that. And and I'm in a new world and. I don't know if you've followed much of our social. We do things a lot different and um, we're pretty upbeat, but uh, I suppose we're competitive and and uh, we want to be the leaders in in what in the industry. You know, I, I really want to set by example, and and I think it does need a revamp in certain areas. Um, and something I've been vocal about. We also do the travel part with Vince uh, quite often. We'll, we'll do a, a childcare centre or a school or whatever and I go back to perception and, and taking animals around in um, tubs and things like that. It's, it's a shocking look. Um, I just reckon we've got to mm. somehow, some way move out of that space. I know that they need to transport we need to transport the animals somehow, some way, but um, maybe it's out of the view of the public, you know, perception, you know. If you can't see it, you don't know. Um, you and I both yeah. know you can move a snake um, in a black tub with air holes and provided it's not going for weeks or days, so to speak, uh, in that enclosure. Yeah. But uh, these are little things, I think, as an industry, we need to, to change because like horse racing, like the Coliseum, you know, we, we, we're under scrutiny and uh, it's frowned upon what we do by certain certain people, having a, an animal in an enclosure. Um, and no doubt you, you would see that maybe through uh, the Melbourne's uh, Aquarium. Um, I certainly have received emails of certain people uh, voicing their concerns uh, that have never been here, but the yeah. fact that we have animals kept in enclosures and I invite them here because, yes, they are, um, but before you comment, come and see what what we do. S experience it because yeah. even Crikey, our, our crocodile, man, he's got the Taj Mahal and there's always projects moving forward and he's going to outgrow his his enclosure that he's in, which is pretty damn awesome. He's got an indoor and an outdoor enclosure and he's in his indoor enclosure at the moment. But he's got a heated slab. It's a mansion. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the Taj Mahal, you know, and I reckon if he could talk, he'd tell you he's pretty damn happy with it. But as I said, he's going to outgrow it. So we are now in the process of 
making him a new enclosure, which is going to be his his forever home. You know, this is going to cater for him if he eventually gets to six meters. And it is on the plans. Wow. It's pretty damn cool. And uh, and his in- current enclosure will become our freshwater crocodiles enclosure. So everyone moves up a peg, you know. Um, and right. Yeah. Is, That's so exciting. It is, and and this is a forever home. You know, this is not. We're not interested in having a juvenile and then saying, "Oh, he's done his what he needed to do for us," and moving him on. You know, this is right. where this is where it ends. You know, um, this is where it is, and and we want that our animals to be happy and and live here for forever. Mm. Now, I think that's a great place to end it. It's been awesome talking to you, but just before we we leave it. I got one more question, and that's about Crikey. And you can tell me to f off if you don't like this question. But what did it feel like getting bitten by a croc? Well, uh, what was it like? What did it feel like? You know what? Been that quick. Uh, so, been on the end of a horse hoof. I've been on the end of a cow horn. I've been mm. bitten by non-venomous snakes, and uh, and now a crocodile. But um, it happened that quick. I didn't even know it happened, right? It wasn't until I looked down, I had hold of him in that split second that I had one hand with my thumb in between his two eyes. On My left hand was down, running down under his jaw. And as I brought my my right hand in to, to, to join my other hand, so and my body was on top of him, yeah? Um, that split second, he just went, boom, grabbed and released. But in that whole motion of me coming down with my right hand, that's when it happened because by the time my hand got down, it was in position and I had him, right? And at that moment, I looked down and I was, I'm like, is that first, my split second, I thought, is that, has he hurt himself, you know? Because I saw blood going everywhere. Mm. And then I realized that it was me. And so my wife came in, she's on the other side of the door, she comes in, taped him, so I still had hold of him, we taped him, boxed him to move him, yeah, and then um, she ripped her T-shirt off, it was like, oh, cowboys, and uh, I wrapped it around my wrist and tied a knot and uh, drove myself to the hospital in Frankston on a Sunday morning there's a few um, unrulies at uh, Frankston Emergency on a Sunday morning. Oh, that a say. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was real busy. Um, but when you're at the uh, end of the queue, they have a nurse that rolls up and down the, the, the line and, and basically asks each individual what, what the problem is and that kind of determines how, how uh, far up the queue you go. And um, I was at the, the far end and she got to me and she said, what's happened? And I said, oh. I got bitten by a crocodile. So if you're ever in an emergency and you need to go through quick, say you got bitten by a crocodile because they don't they don't <laughs> fuck around. They get you straight in there. They hit you with antibiotics. <laughs> but the funny thing is, Alex, is I didn't know how bad it was, nor did they. They x-rayed it because they need to x-ray it for two things. They need to see, first of all, if there's any teeth in there. And second of all, they need to make sure, mm. well, they need to see how far up the the air has gone up your your arm, right? So that's what they were looking for um, sure. because, as you know, they're full of bacteria and the biggest issue with a croc bite 
if they don't eat you, is infection, right? So they x-ray up your arm uh, to see how far, the, and I don't know how they determine how far the, the air has travelled. So they patched me up with a with a uh, bandage and, well, I had to, I had 70 people at my property and I had to go and move the crocodile back in and they had me on a drip with the antibiotics for the infection and must have been in there for an hour and a half and I said to the nurse, what's the go now? She goes, well, you've got to have, have an operation tonight um, but we can't guarantee it because it's a public system. Thankfully, I had private health health cover so I was able yeah. to ring my private health cover and they arranged me to get an operation at a private hospital, right? So I was booked in for 9 o'clock that night and they were going to transfer me from Frankston to this other hospital and I said, uh, I've got to go home. It's not till 9 o'clock. I'm not sticking <laughs> around here. I've got to put this crocodile back. So I discharged myself. They were furious. So I went home, put the crocodile away. That night my wife took me to the other hospital and they operated on me and I woke up the next day because uh, I was under anaesthetic and uh, I want I wanted to keep riding as a jockey and I had I woke up with a cast on my arm. I'm like, what's going on here? It wasn't until I saw the doctor two days later, I said, mate, when can I start riding again? And he's like, you're joking, aren't you? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, mate, you won't be riding for weeks. He goes, you've got 39 stitches in your wrist and he goes, what we didn't realise is that you'd severed your arteries to your hand. And uh, he was still trying to understand because I used my hand for the remainder of that day. When I went home, I was just got on with my life. I just thought it was a scratch, you know, and I just got on with my life. And he couldn't understand how I still had functions in my hands because I'd actually severed the arteries to my hand. So, so that had to... Um, I had to stitch my arteries back together in my wrist and then obviously stitch up my wrist. And uh, I didn't tell him, but I I did ride a couple, you know, like 10 days later. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. I was going to go broke. <laughs> Chris, you're a, you got an awesome story, mate. Uh, you're a ripper bloke. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a... A damn good time speaking it's with been you, my mate. Pleasure. I hope I haven't rambled too much. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, for anyone that's interested in the Funky Farm, follow them on Instagram by the same name, I believe. Yeah, Is that correct, at Chris? the Funky Farm, um, and the same on uh, cool. Facebook. Anywhere else? Facebook, Twitter. We don't do much on Twitter. Twitter's for narcs. <laughs> you heard it there, guys. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, Chris. Take it easy, easy bro. Peace.